This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Jeremy Schwartz. He essentially runs the research division at Wisdom Tree Investments. I was kind of surprised to learn his nickname is Junior Jeremy. He has been working with Professor Jeremy Siegel at Wharton for almost 20 years, uh, and he is a really knowledgeable and up to his elbows in all of the specifics of creating ETFs, uh, focusing on valuation, dividends, earnings. They have carved out a niche in the world of investing in ETFs. Um, That kind of bypassed the question I was going to ask, hey, what makes you guys different from fill in the blank, BlackRock, Vanguard, Dimensional Funds, whatever. But Jeremy does a great job explaining what they do, what it's like to work in a fund where you have legends of finance like Michael Steinhardt as chairman and Jeremy Siegel as as one of the chief advisors and Jonathan uh, Stein putting this together. Really a fascinating conversation for anybody who is at all interested in indexing, factor-based investing, valuation, ETFs, I think you're going to find this to be an absolutely uh, fascinating conversation. It's something I've been trying to do for a long time. We, we, Jeremy and I just keep ships in the night. Our schedules just didn't work out, and I'm glad I finally got him into the studio. With no further ado, my conversation with Jeremy Schwartz. My special guest today is Jeremy Schwartz. He is the director of research at Wisdom Tree Investments, where he has been ensconced since 2005, having risen through the ranks from senior analyst to deputy director to essentially head of research at the firm. He is responsible for the construction process and oversees all of research across the Wisdom Tree equity family. Jeremy Schwartz, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, thanks for having me. Let's begin with the fun stuff. You were um, an early hire at Wisdom Tree. You started in 05, is that right? That's right. And you had, around 2008, uh, recently received a promotion right into the midst of the financial collapse. What was that collapse like while you were working at Wisdom Tree? Yeah, and it's also a startup asset management firm going into the biggest financial <laughs> crisis since the Great Depression. Fantastic and, timing. And you have value-oriented investment philosophies, dividend-based investment strategies, financials were big parts of the dividend-paying universe, right? So it was a tough environment. Also, you know, Wisdom Tree was really trying to establish itself as a pioneer in ETFs. It was early days in ETFs when we mm-hmm. started in 06. There was 300 ETFs, maybe 300 billion under management. So we were trying a novel indexing approach, and so we were built not for small success. We really had bigger ambitions in mind. So we had high break-evens um, and really trying to have a big team to to put us on the map. So it was certainly a challenging moment going through the, the financial crisis. Um, but we bottomed around $3 billion of assets in 2009, a little bit below $3 billion. Mm-hmm. Today, we're $45 billion. So we've seen wow. mammoth growth over the last 10 years. But yeah, it was very trying times. And, and you didn't know, could you survive? Could you get past that crisis point? Everybody has a story about what was going on in their shop in the midst of the crisis, from from Vanguard to Morgan Stanley to Dave Rosenberg tells the story of his first day at work in the private sector was the day of the 87 crash. 
Tell us what was going on behind the scenes at Wisdom Tree when it felt like the world was coming to an end. I mean, what's amazing is I was on vacation in the first week of October. We had a family vacation planned. We were on a cruise in 2008, October 2008, leaving from Asia. I was an Asia cruise. You know, we were in, in, starting in Japan, going to Hong Kong, China. And I'm looking at the, the screens on TV. I'm like, am I going to have a job when I get back? I mean, it was really unbelievable. You see the market falling 10%. Um, and I didn't know, you know, where we were just as a firm-wise, like how close we were to just not surviving during the depths of the crisis. Like we were weeks away from not being able to make payroll. Is that true? You in, were actually that close? In, in March of 2009, yeah. I mean, we were definitely bleeding losses. We definitely had, you know, a capital raising in March of 2009. Um, and that put us on. The markets turned around, and we were sort of off to the races after that. But yeah, we were we were close in March of '09. Did did you guys have a white night, or was it the existing funders and founders basically reached a little deeper into their pockets? It's a combination. Um, so AIG came in during 2009, <laughs> uh, and there was a you know there that's was a capital that's race. hilarious, isn't it? AIG said to Wisdom Tree, "Hey, let us help you out. You guys look like you can need a little assist." They were investing in the investment management side. They saw the growth potential of ETFs as part of asset management, and they did make an investment. Hmm. That, that, that's fascinating. And, and the structure currently of Wisdom Tree? It's been a publicly traded company. I mean, one of the, the background is we had uh, Jonathan Steinberg, our CEO, had a media company in the 90s and 2000s. And he saw indexing and ETFs when he was doing publishing. It was called Individual Investor Group. I re- mm-hmm. And so he, was, he saw McGraw-Hill, he saw indexes, he saw ETFs, and he was trying to create his own indexes, license them to become ETFs. Well, during the tech bubble, he sold the magazine kept the indexes and uh-huh. was trying to relaunch the firm. Um, and it was really, he had this shell company. It was really a, literally a penny stock trading. Right. And then he re-raised capital in 04 to relaunch the business um, with Michael Steinhardt, Professor Siegel, Jim Robinson from American Express funding the business in 04 and relaunching. Um, but that was that was the history back back then. So it's always been publicly traded because of Jano's previous magazine days. That, that's some trinity behind behind the company. That's quite a list of heavy hitters. Yeah, I mean, you, th- you think going from trading at a few pennies right before the, the funding, uh, Michael funded it in 04 at 16 cents, and the day they announced just the f- these co- these people coming together, I think it closed at a dollar, dollar, dollar fifty, yeah. something like that. That Steinhardt guy is an up-and-comer. Keep an eye on, keep an eye on him. The other thing that I find kind of fascinating, and I think I kind of knew this about you, but forgot about it. You were Jeremy Siegel's assistant at Wharton. You helped him edit subsequent editions of Stocks for the Long Run. You practically co-authored a book with him. What on earth was it like being uh, next yeah. to Jeremy Siegel during all this? Unbelievable. Um, and he, he was a fountain hose of knowledge. I was just trying to soak it all in. Um, I mean, I got so lucky of when I got to Wharton. It was 99. So the... the Perfect bubble. Um, that's when I first got to work, and I'd done internships at Prudential. You know, sort of caught up in the tech craze. You know, he wrote our internet stocks overvalued in April of '99. Then big cap tech stocks are suckers bet in March of 2000. I meet him right after that article comes out. Perfect so timing. He's you know reevaluating his own portfolio from being just Vanguard S&P 500 from the 1970s, and all of his research is around. Okay, I'm telling people to sell tech stocks, yet my own portfolio is Vanguard S&P 500. What should I be doing? And so I helped him do a lot of that research. I met him in 2001. I took, well, I met him through a bunch of programs. I took his class in 01. I needed something to do for a, a few months before I was supposed to go to Australia for a semester abroad. Ended up 
working for him, never went to Australia, took off like two years of school to work for him full time on his really? books. You know, obviously set my future path. I just dedicated really my life after that towards working with him. And I sort of knew it could be more than books one day because I sat in his office. I heard every conversation he had and I knew what people wanted to do with him. And he just, you know, he was very much in low fee. I Vanguard, I buy the market, but he really was struggling with what is the best way to index. And so I saw there could be a potential to do more with him. Um, and Wisdom Tree came along was the perfect fit. But it was, you know, he was just an unbelievable mentor and teacher and still is. I mean, I still interact with him all the time today. How has the company changed over the past decade since the financial crisis? You know, when we started out, the, the idea was very simple. is Everything's market cap weighted. You need some relative discipline to rebalance back to value, help try to protect investors from bubbles and things getting really expensive. So the original conception was these value-based rebalancing, dividend earnings weighted type portfolios. And on, on, in other words, moving away from the heavy market cap weighting towards something with a different flavor. Yes. It was, the idea was to be simple, rules-based, transparent, but manage valuation risk for the market. Mm-hmm. And that was the original conception. And, and that just applied in every region around the world. And we, we blanketed the world with equities for that. Um, we've certainly branched out and continue to develop products. Um, currency hedging became a very major focus of the firm. Um, that's one of the things that's really taken off. Uh, it's one of the things I'm very passionate about, where I think we have some really unique ideas that are different than the way people traditionally allocate internationally. Uh, and I, Let, let's talk about that, because DXJ was essentially your baby. That's the Wisdom Tree Japan Yen currency hedged ETF, in full disclosure, I own it, clients of my firm own it, uh, when we wanted Japan exposure and recognized that uh, Abenomics and their version of QE was going to really put a little pain on the yen as the dollar was getting stronger, it was the perfect product. Thank you. Well, we appreciate your support. Uh, and I think, listen, I think currency is one of these very misunderstood phenomena. And I, you know, I think... So it's great to see Japan take off. It was the first currency edge ETF to really illustrate how currencies and stocks can work together, that often a declining currency can be very good for the stocks in that market, and they move in such big directions. I mean, no- so, so let me interrupt you there, because there's a really interesting story about DXJ. It's been trading for how long now? It was one of our original ETFs in 06. Now, it was unhedged when we launched it. It was dividend-weighted Japan. And it was going. It was doing better than the MSCI cap weight Japan by 90, 100 basis points a year. But it was, you know, nobody cared enough. And as we mm-hmm. were looking at it, and we're saying, and at the time, the yen was super strong, and the stocks were super weak. The dollar was weak. The yen was strong, and things were about to reverse. And we kept saying, this may not go on forever. This might turn around. And you could say everybody else has these two bets. They have the stock bet and the currency additional risk. And the currency was moving 10 to 15% a year. So while our, our, our value added on the stocks, I might have been 100 basis points. If the currency goes against you 10 percentage points a year. Good luck. Right? So we said just, it could be so different by just focusing on the stock alone and not take the secondary So when did bet. the currency hedge enter that particular holding? April of 2010. All right. Now, I remember have, seeing that holding, and your AUM was fairly low. The inflows yeah. were fairly low. It was doing okay, and then suddenly, you know, suddenly it was like a fuse was lit, and off to the races. How did that come about, and what was it like 
watching these giant inflows on a product you essentially yeah. created. So we were the first firm to do currency hedging in ETF form. Like it's not a new concept. People have been doing sure. hedging, and they've been teaching about it in the CFA textbooks for years. But we were the first firm to do it in ETFs. We had done our first one on a broader national basis a few months before DXJ. Which was what? What was the first Which is one? now HEDJ, which was we started off with just broad EFA hedging. Right. And what's interesting is we then made the second Define product. Define EFA for listeners who are EFA is your is your core international index that people follow. It's all the it's sort of 21 developed markets of the ex-US without the emerging markets, Europe, Australasia, Asia, so Hong Kong, Australia, it, it, it's, Japan. It's Europe, Australia, Far East, is that yes. essentially the shorthand? Yes. And so now how do you do a currency hedge? on a broad region that has a dozen different currencies. It's really the same way as DXJ, just with multiple currencies, is you have the underlying stock exposures, and then you add a currency forward on top that's designed to neutralize and get you back to just the underlying stock exposure. Mm -hmm. So you're rolling these currency forwards on a monthly basis, um, but it's pretty plain, vanilla, simple, um, which is the ironic thing, is people think of hedging as the more exotic play. And I say it's actually more plain vanilla. So, you know, but it's ice expensive, cream, and uh, when you're dealing uh, 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 with a lot of different currencies, expensive. it's complicated. Make the counter argument. So it's really not expensive. So it's expensive in Brazil. Brazil costs you ten percent a year. Wow. In IFA, you're being paid to hedge. It is actually a better than free proposition. Really. And it's been better than free proposition for the last thirty years. So the idea that it's expensive is one of these myths that I keep trying to come back on. And I actually feel like we have this branding problem in hedging, which is you can't go back and change history. But if I, if you call your international stock fund, your international double-decker de fund, mm -hmm. which is your international stock plus currency fund, right? who would buy that? I don't know. They wouldn't. They would say, I just want the stocks. I don't want a double-decker fund. Right. And the problem is people think of the hedge as a double-decker. No, the hedge is plain vanilla stock exposure, not stock plus currency. So let me push back a little bit on the European hedged fund. You have a Euro-hedged yeah. ETF, um, but not every country in Europe is on the Euro. So you're ex-Switzerland, you're ex-a lot of the Nordic countries, you're ex-England. Yeah. How European is, is the European fund? So HEDJ, which we started off as our broad EFA proxy, mm -hmm. we saw the success in DXJ, the Japan in 2010, you know, went from 100 million, the earthquake happened, and people really started training it after... The, literally, the earthquake. the earthquake, the tsunami, everything yes. that took place there that whacked the yen, and, and suddenly you had some... Well, the yen went up a lot, but oh, people really? were starting to say might not continue. And that's when it really started that was trading. That was five years ago? 2011. Or All right, six years ago. Wow. And so that's when it started trading. It started seeing some interest. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when we had the idea to make the broad HEDJ, which was at the start, just the whole international basket. We focused it on the single currency, the euro, because mm -hmm. we saw, hey, people can grasp the idea that a single currency, the yen, they started trading DXJ. We made the hedge HEDJ just euro zone only. So it is just euro specific. Um, euro is the biggest currency in the EFA international complex. Mm -hmm. It's a third, call it a third of EFA's euro traded stocks. So we did focus on the single currency. So we can make it easier for people to make that decision. One currency, Germany, France, Spain, all those euro only countries. Mm -hmm. So yes, HEJ is euro only. Um, but you could. You could have a broader Europe fund that you hedge the euro, the pound, the Swiss franc, the Norway. You could right. do that too. We've focused on euro only. That That's what I... I think DXJ is unique because you have one country with one currency yeah. with a fairly uniform population and a behavior set that is very, very similar. I'm not saying everybody acts and thinks alike in Japan, but 
it, it is unique in that there is no other sizable country other than the United States that that has that same sort of situation. And J- Japan is also unique in the currency market where you actually need a weak yen for the stocks to do well. So it is so big strongly negatively correlated. Right. right. There is a real economic linkage between the, the the currency and the stocks, and you do see profits the last five years as the currency has weakened, profits have soared. So there is a real direct economic benefit. But even for small cap companies, which are more local to Japan, even they trade inversely correlated to the yen. So Japan, just the way people trade it, you need a weak yen to really be bullish Japan today. Um, so it's one where when you hedge, you actually increase the volatility for the broader international basket where I'm talking about, that's where the opportunity really is, you know, for the going forward basis. Europe and Japan, maybe there's $100 billion of assets between Europe and Japan mutual funds. There's $1.8 trillion in IFA that are basically unhedged. Hmm. But 30% of Japan's now hedged, 20% of Europe's hedged. Wow. The big opportunity and that I'm focused on, or we at Wisdom Tree are really focused on, are the, the IFA complex, where adding currency adds your expected risk profile. Not your expected return profile, your expected risk profile. That's pretty fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the world of asset management. We've heard that indexing is worse than Marxism, that this is un-American, it's the end of the world. I, th- I think that everybody who is making those arguments are sort of self-interested in talking their own books. But let's at least discuss how indexing might be affecting uh, the price discovery mechanism. What, what are your views on this? Yeah, I, I don't think it's worse than Marxism. It's actually the <laughs> definition of what people need. They want lower fees, right? Amazon is bringing down fees for retail customers, and essentially indexing is bringing down fees for active or asset management generally. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there's this idea that our ETS distorting the market is it flows to passive, causing this quote-unquote bubble in the markets or, or pushing up prices. For every buyer, there's a seller. So I just see fees coming out of the system. Investors are being better off with fees not going to the active managers. They're keeping it in investors' pockets. For you to say that the flows to passive over the last decade, and passive is taking a large amount of money over the last decade, mm-hmm. for them to be driving up the market prices, they're people are buying the passive, who are they selling? Are they selling value managers? Are they selling the people who's, who buy cheaply and just buying the more expensive stuff? And it has been a growth-led market over the last 10 years. But when I look at the flows to the styles, let's mm-hmm. say US large cap, I don't see the flows dramatically leaving value. If anything, over the last 10 years, you've seen flows leaving growth. You're seeing active growth, seeing outflows, and you're seeing just general trends towards indexing, which makes you question, are the flows to passive really driving up the prices of these sort of quote-unquote expensive parts of the market? So I see it as a big win for investors. They're keeping the fees. I don't see them as dramatically changing. And I, I think Vanguard did a study saying that fee compression saved investors over $40 billion over the past 20 years. That's a lot of money. And that's going to continue. I mean, that's people, people worry, you know, what percentage of the market can be indexed? It could be a lot higher than where we are today. And it should be a lot higher. There's a lot of active managers who aren't adding value. And so in the future- Are not adding value, active managers that Bill Miller calls them the closet indexers. Yeah, I love that conversation. And it's it's- I see more and more of what we're trying to do at Wisdom Tree is, is you know, we started off ten years ago trying to provide low tracking 
indexes. So mm -hmm. get you very broad exposure. Our broad dividend-weighted portfolios have 1,500 stocks. Our broad earnings-weighted portfolios have 2,000 stocks. And there, we're tilting towards value and quality factors that we think can add value over the market. So maybe we add 100 basis points over long periods of time with 2% tracking error in the earnings indexes. That's low tracking error portfolios. Those are the closet index trackers Miller is talking about. Mm -hmm. But we're doing it in, in sort of low-fee index-type format. Increasingly, where I think the future is, is we're going to be going for the higher active share, higher alpha strategies, and trying to get more activeness into the portfolios as well. So, so let's touch on that because that's a fascinating subject. First, I notice you have a, a I don't want to say a, a dividend weight across everything. Yes, we do. But, <laughs> but dear Lord, dividends are really the, the mother's milk of wisdom tree. Is it is it profitability and valuation, or what is it about dividends that are special? And the past decade has seen a cheap money allowed a ton of buybacks. Yeah, what does what do all those buybacks do to dividends? I personally would rather see dividends as an investor than buybacks. But tell me your perspective. Yeah, finance one hundred and one assets are present value of cash flows for stocks. Mm -hmm. Cash flows are dividends. Where do dividends come from? They come from earnings. So when we started 10 years ago, dividends and earnings were the two families we created. Dividends uh, and earnings, okay. Two separate families. We launched a U.S. earnings family, global dividend family. How many different funds are in that, that grouping? In earnings, we have today approximately six. Across it's, different regions it, and different well, in styles? The US. That's in the U.S. Si so what are the six in the U.S.? Total Lar market, mm -hmm. large, mid, small, and then we have some specific... Um, sort of domestic economy and exporter mm -hmm. strategies, and then and what about dividends? There's a uh, the exact number I'm going to lose because it's like but 50 it's a plus. lot. It's, yeah, a it's, a lar a it's a large number. Um, and so we do cover the world with dividend focused strategies. Um, we do India. We have an earnings fund because a dividend earnings fund. No, in India is earnings because they don't okay. pay a lot of dividends, and gotcha. so we we're the first firm to do India local shares in 2008. That's interesting. So we have the broadest India index. Our India earnings weight index, and that's a country we're super bullish on over the yeah, long absolutely. term. Absolutely. I couldn't um, agree more. But it's valuation sensitive, and we wanted to own the broadest cross-section. So the traditional ETS, 60, 70 stocks, we have 200 plus stocks. Mm -hmm. So that's one where earnings weighted we did do. Um, but the idea was dividends are this objective measure around the world. In every region outside the U.S., 90% plus of the market pays a dividend. It's really the U.S. where we do a lot of buybacks because mm -hmm. of stock options. If you have a stock option, yep. you don't like to pay a dividend because your stock goes down by the amount of the dividend. Mm -hmm. Because we have literally like dollar, yes, penny for penny, penny for penny. And so that's what when we started doing stock options in 1982 is when we started paying dividends less. I mean, the payout ratio used to be 70% right. in the old days. It's been you know 30 to 40 percent in the last 20, 30 years, um, but, it's, but so clearly buybacks are impacting the available cash for dividends. People are doing as much buybacks as dividends today. So when people look at the two percent dividend yield and say we well, used to have a four percent dividend yield, well, net buybacks have been one and a half to two percent, and so that what that means is, and they're actually net buybacks, so they're reducing shares outstanding, which means future dividend growth will be higher. Um, and so I've you know we focused when people say, do you have a dividend plus net buyback index? We've often said our earnings indexes represent that because you would basically add, historically, you would add more technology companies, which is what had earnings and buybacks but no dividends. Now, in our large cap dividend index, you have more tech companies Apple, than financials. Microsoft, right, that's crazy. So, um, I got to ask you the, the question that always uh, has me scratching my head on an earnings based set of um, holdings. Uh, the US, we have completely wacky accounting rules and regulations. How do you manage to square the circle of 
every region of the world, every country in the world has their own set of yeah. accounting standards and and rules, and you end up with, hey, a, a PE of ten in this country may be nothing like a PE in ten of ten. In, in a different country. You just made my case for dividend weighting around the world. That's exactly why we did dividends around the world, was it's an objective measure. When we started 10 years ago, you didn't have to worry about different accounting centers. Now, we really don't have any cross-country earnings-weighted funds. I mean, we have the India fund. Um, we do have an... That's not exactly true. We do Our emerging market consumer fund mm-hmm. has an earnings model. Right. But that's, you know, it's like a one-off fund for us. So, so in other words, when you go in country by country, you're really doing a valuation screen specific to that country. And the top 10% across every country, what does it make a difference? How their math is, it's still yeah. the top cream of the crop in each country. And that is why dividends just cut across all the countries. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the, that's the key there. Um, you can fake earnings, you can't fake dividends. For only so long can you fake the dividends. Let's talk a little bit about the future of asset management. Um, there's a sense that the Vanguard effect, the compression of fees everywhere, is not just a brief phenomena or a shallow phenomena, but hey, it's all going to zero eventually. Discuss. Listen, the, the the drive for fees lower puts more money back in investors' pockets. I think mm-hmm. it's generally the trend it's going in is across all segments, from asset management to advisors to everywhere. Um, is is that's where it's going? Um, how so, how low can it go? It's getting close to zero. I mean, it's at a few basis points for pure beta. I mean, Wisdom Tree was set up living in a vanguard world, and we were saying we have our mission in life. Only mission in life was can we do better than vanguard after fees, after taxes? You got to improve on the vanguard experience because you know they're going to always have the lowest fees. Right. Nobody can compete with them. So they're, they're built for that for forty years. There's nobody even close to them. So dimensional you, funds, maybe. So it's no. A I mean, they're 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 well. They're a little more expensive. They have a little deeper research bench, yes. but you know they're considered factor slash yes. active. So it's there's a there's a little more on it. Pure beta, zero cost beta. You're going to have that out there. Um, but so the question is, how can you add value on top of that? So we think of that as an investment firm. Can our individual products add value after fees, after taxes? Uh, but then also then how when you deliver advice, can you try to package it in a way that adds value as well. And that's really, so our first 10 years at Wisdom Tree was about building great products. Mm -hmm. And I think the next 10 years is really how do we help our clients and how do we deliver advice in a cheaper format enabled by technology. So we're making a lot of investments in that technology side to really help advisors grow and and leverage their businesses and then, um, you know, just bring costs down there as well. So let's look at that. Advisory firms and advisors are looking for more than just asset management. What do you, you you sit in a fairly unique position in the in the food chain? What do you think the financial advisors are looking for, and how do you guys create something unique for that audience? Yeah, everybody is is talking about the robo world, right? Mm-hmm. The betterments, the wealth fronts, and and this online direct to consumer model. We are very advisor driven, so. You know, we're, we have an advisor solutions program. Um, we made a big investment in a firm called Advisor Engine mm-hmm. that is really a full technology stack try to help people manage from client onboarding, account opening, digital. It's a very digitizing your investment practice. 
And that's going to be an increasing part of what we do over time. I see it from just the conversation we've had in the last few months going out with Advisor Engine together. Um, they're becoming an increasing partner. But as well as, you know, our, we're also, we've been investing in technology ourselves for the last few years. And so we've created some great tools. We call it portfolio construction services on our website. Mm-hmm. Just digital portfolio is a way to do analytics, institutional caliber stuff that people pay very high fees for. We're trying to provide for free. That will help you look at your portfolio, look at different factor exposures, stress test it, create some mappings, edit your own, what we spit back out at there for you. So it's a really trying to help people with their portfolio management that, side That's as well. available to any advisor anybody. or anybody who goes to the Wisdom it's Tree site? An, it, financial professionals uh, mm-hmm. through, you know, there's, you got to have a login on our website and that's all you need as a financial professional. You can get access to the portfolio tool. So you mentioned robo-advisors. I'm a little bit of a contrarian because, hey, you know what? If you give me $200 million in venture capital money for marketing, I could raise 3 or $4 billion. But the better way to think about it is, wait, you've spent $100 million to generate 4 or $5 million a year in revenue? How is that going to take over the world? Yeah, I don't want to comment on valuations there, but it, it's it's everybody's going to have some element of that. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. the, the, that technology... All clients are going to access their accounts online. I think every Isn't that advisor taking place will have already it. now is increasingly. I mean, if you think about it, everybody who's got a custodian, be it Schwab or TD or Fidelity, you get a full dashboard online. You could see your holdings. You can more or less see your performance. What what the robos seem to do is come up with an asset allocation model relative yes. to your risk tolerance. How unique is that, and and is that going to spread to the rest of the industry? I think you know our our firm has been investing on the advisor side. We think mm-hmm. there there will be some people who like to go direct to consumer and people manage their own money and and do that sure. through through what they're offering and they have very good jet you know generic offerings. Is there. that is that going to be true for the average high net worth family? Someone has three million dollars, five million dollars in the market. Do they want to pick up the phone and speak to somebody, or do they want to log in? I think most people. The, the, there's a debate is how much of the wealth around is is advisor overseen versus direct. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're still we've always from the beginning been positioned for working with advisors and financial intermediaries. I think that's how we continue to see. You know, so all of our investments in technology, advisor solutions, is really trying to help advisors build their businesses. And it's very tough to find that individual client, and that's what we're going to continue to position for. Uh, I, I'm curious as to how much of the fear of robo advisors is a generational thing, that the older advisors see the new technology and fear it, and the younger advisors say, yeah, this is just another tool in our, uh, another arrow in my quiver. And the research we've seen is that even the older generations, they've been working with technology, you know, the successful people, they've been operating with technology. So they, even the 70-year-olds, they need, they want your a digital experience. Um, so if you if you're not on board with upgrading your technology, if you're still in the paper world, Clients are going to go to firms that have the the digital offerings, and so that's that's a trend that we see just continuing. And we want to help um, the, the clients that we work with do that and and do it do it well. So you mentioned fees earlier. We've been talking about that for for forever. Um, very recently, Fidelity introduced the concept of the fulcrum fee, which is a reduced fee if they're not out not outperforming a particular benchmark. 
Is that something that potentially can catch on? What What are your thoughts on these fulcrum fees? Conceptually, it's a very interesting. I, I mean, it's a it's what you would think you want as a consumer of products. If your manager, you're trying to outperform, your manager doesn't outperform, you should pay less. And so, conceptually, I'm I'm aligned with it. Mm-hmm. The incentives are very hard to align. I, in sort of a public vehicle like an ETF, um, there are some people who are starting to experiment with that. So we're definitely watching that closely. Um, and, and you just you want to make sure if you're doing it, you've got to align when are people are invested in the fund, you know, time periods, the incentives for both the investors in the fund, properly timing up who's paying what when is not a straightforward proposition in, in a public vehicle like ETFs. I mean, if, as a doing a one-on-one separate account where you can manage your time sure. horizon with your performance in the fund, s- super easy to think about. Right. As, but as a, a ra- ETF wrapper, that's a challenge to it do. It seems challenging. But, you know, there, I'm sure there's going to be ways of looking at that, and we'll, we'll study that and see, think about it. So you guys are, are pretty heavy value-oriented. You're pretty heavy dividend-oriented. Uh, these are part, I, not that dividends are, but it's the same traditional Fama French factor models. Yep. What do you think of the rise of so-called smart beta, which really is factor investing with a, a little bit of a different marketing twist, and you guys get painted with that same brush? What you call things is always an interesting term, and we used to call things <laughs> passive alpha when we right. first started. Passive alpha. Trying to get rules-based ways of generating alpha. In a lot of ways, I think what we're trying to provide is low fee alpha, or you could say modern alpha. You know, the idea. I like that modern alpha. In other words, low fee, passive, technology but with some enabled. sort of twist. And mm-hmm. so you're using technology algorithms to add value. It's going to be increasingly. You're you're using smart technology, which is a sort of 21st century technologies to try to add value. Um, and so increasingly, where we might have been low tracking error alpha. We're increasingly going to be going after the higher tracking error, real value added. Define tracking error. Sort of how much risk versus the benchmark you're taking. So we're not talking about active share. We're talking about risk-adjusted returns? Yeah. Well, active share is a component of that. So the more active share you are, the higher your tracking error is likely to be mm-hmm. because the more mismatch you are from the from Versus the, market. the index. Got it. So um, I think about it as... The closer you are to the benchmark, the lower your tracking error will be. And and that's what just a total market. If you have 2,000 stocks, you're going to have pretty low tracking error. Let's talk about a little bit about bonds. We haven't gotten to fixed yeah. income at all. How are you perceiving what's going on in that space? Can you create alpha in the fixed income side? What what do you guys Absolutely. think Absolutely. So we do. We have- um, I'm teeing up softballs Enhanced here uh, <laughs> yield bond indexes. And actually, you know, we're here in the Bloomberg offices. We're partnered with Bloomberg on a number of fixed income indexes, yield enhanced Bloomberg, Barclays, total fixed income indexes, where you're just, you know, if you, historical yields are as low as they've been in the U.S. market. Duration is the highest, but can you sort of reweight the ag away from just treasuries, which have been huge issuance, low mm-hmm. yield, high duration, reweight towards credit, which is what your traditional active so manager would do. Corporates, tips, what REITs, what are you adding to that? It's the so. traditional investment grade ag universe, mm-hmm. but just rebucketing it to have constraints so you don't increase duration too much, you don't tilt the credit too much, 
but it really it tilts to credit and away from treasuries in a constrained fashion. So we have a short-term version. Uh, the ETF is SHAG, S-H-A-G. The longer term is AGI, so AG-Y, um, as a way to just yield enhance the AG. And we're definitely seeing traction there. It's early days. Um, but I think that's our first factor investment in fixed income. But we've also done fundamentally screened, sort of credit screens. So looking at, in the high yield market as an example, screening out bonds with negative free cash flow. Not just issuing sense. market cap, which gives the biggest weight to the biggest indebted issuer. Screen out those bonds with negative free cash flow. And that's a quality portfolio on bonds that we've, we have four different funds screened around that as well. Can you stick around a little bit? Absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll keep talking. We have been speaking with Jeremy Schwartz. He is the Director of Research at Wisdom Tree Investments. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things value, ETF, and dividend-oriented. Be sure and check out my daily column. You can see that at BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Thank you so much for doing this. We have been talking about doing this for like a year and a half. I'm like, oh, I have to get you on the show this for, is awesome. for, for forever. So I'm so glad we managed um, to get in, to get you in. And by the way, Medina, and you could keep this in, that last conversation where he was describing Junior Jeremy in the intro, I love that. We should keep that on the broadcast portion. So just just nod and or say yes or something and I'm I'm fine. Um, <laughs> so so anyway, let's talk a little more about Siegel because I'm endlessly yeah. amused by him. And full disclosure, I used to bust his chops heading into 0809 about um, just buy and hold and kind of forget. To me, the 0809 crisis was you're never going to call every crisis, but dear lord, you can if you looked. I used to call it the the leaping dolphin. Remember the three D yeah. pictures people used to have on the wall, the the posters where it didn't look like anything, but if you caught it at just the right angle, oh, there's the yeah. leaping dolphin. That that's kind of how I felt about the last crisis. But full full disclosure, I'm endlessly impressed, entertained, amused by Siegel for so many reasons. Him and Bob Schiller are buddies. Are there two more opposite personalities? I've got a great story on Siegel and Schiller. So, um, in a way of when I was courting my wife. So, my wife likes to joke that, you know, I, I met her in 2001 and I met the, the love of my, my true love of my life in 2001, which is when I started working for Siegel also. <laughs> but, you know, that first summer I started working for him, she was taking a class where she had to do a book report reviewing and contrasting irrational exuberance with. Which Stop is Bob, long, Bob long Schiller's run. book, where he had had briefed um, Greenspan in '96, and then Greenspan went out and gave the irrational exuberance speech yeah. based on Schiller's work, and then Schiller named the book Irrational Exuberance. Yeah, and so you know he, they talk about how they vacation together. So yep. I, on one of those 2001 summer vacations, they were in Ocean City. Siegel invited me to a barbecue and stay with them for the weekend in Ocean City. Schiller was coming down. The New York Times was coming to profile, and they did the walks on the beach with the New York Times Hilarious. profile. 
And so I got to invite my wife to the, well, she was my you know girlfriend, obviously, at the time. Just to, to the, impress the hell out of her. To the barbecue. And right. she had to be, she was doing this book report on Rashman and Zuber. And Bob Schiller. And she, she tells the professor, I have to miss class. I'm going to this barbecue with Siegel and Schiller. And the professor's like, can I come? <laughs> but um, she got to, you know, she wrote her paper and she was giving examples of, we went to Atlantic City and they were mm-hmm. playing blackjack and Siegel was into blackjack playing the cards. Best odds in the house. And Schiller didn't even, you know, didn't want to play the blackjack tables. And she put that in her paper on the stories of how even their gambling, you That's know, funny. Siegel embraced the risk of liking to play blackjack and Schiller was so risk averse and didn't want to play blackjack. She, she got an, you know, A plus on the paper. But uh, that was, you know, an, an interesting time. So that's, those stories of them vacationing together are real. Um, and actually, my first project where I got to show Siegel my writing was also related to Bob Schiller. So, Oh, and in what way? Go explain that. So Stocks for the Long Run, you know, came out in 94, 98. He did the second edition. I was working with him on the 2002 edition. And right after I spent the weekend or, you know, that vacation, I said, you know, of all the st- topics you have in Stocks for the Long Run, you have nothing on behavioral finance. Um, and wh- your best friend is Bob Schiller. Come on. And you wrote a paper with Richard Thaler in 97. <laughs> who, uh, and Thaler just won the Nobel Prize for a lot of his work. And Siegel and Thaler had collaborated on some work together. So I said, Let's, you should add a chapter. And he's always had quants and math people, but he never had a writer. Um, so I said, why don't you let me take a stab at it? And so I wrote the behavioral finance chapter for awesome. Stocks for Long Run. And you could see if you read it, it's very different than any other chapter in the book. It's actually written as a conversation between a psychologist. You know, a couple goes to their psychologist. They're having all these behavioral issues. And the psychologist walks them through all their, their behavioral finance problems. So you could see it's very different than the rest of the book. That, that That's so funny. You know, I have a, a number of Schiller stories, but the only one I want to share is after he did the show, I wasn't going to put Bob Schiller on on a subway. He had to go somewhere else. So I got a car and I I, I took him in a cab. It's pouring rain, it, it, tons of traffic. I was afraid we we're going to be late. But he gets into the back of the cab and immediately puts on a seatbelt. I'm like, <laughs> ah, this is a person who really understands risk. Yeah, you can see it carried throughout their all all their lives. So so let's talk a little bit about Siegel. I, I have a couple of Siegel stories also. I really enjoy him when he was on the podcast. I think it was the first time I met him in person as opposed to yeah. a disembodied head on TV um, or a voice in, in, an, in an earpiece while you're debating him about something. And the only way I could really describe him is... Filled with childlike wonder. Is, am I overstating that at all? I mean, his passion for teaching, his passion for the markets, it just that's what gets people excited. I mean, why he's the most popular professor at Wharton. And wh- let me stop you there. Year after year, he is consistently voted by Wharton students their favorite professor. And in the MBA world, you have to pay for your classes. So mm-hmm. it's a real market-based system of you have a certain number of points, you can allocate it. And I, mean, I remember when this was, I, I haven't kept track with the, the points, but when I was there, he was always the most highly bid professor. And it's and why? It's, well, he starts his class, his first half hour of every class is essentially just a look at the markets. And he That day. He has his Bloomberg terminal up. He's mm-hmm. walking through what's going on. News wise, and so it's the only you go to Wharton and you think this is the most practical thing to learn about the markets, but it's really the only class that actually does really go through what's happening in the market real time, actual real market, time. And, and looking at the other thing about him that I found so amusing. And look, we go a little long, the whole idea is these are deeper dive conversations. He's sitting where you were sitting, 
And about an hour into the conversation, and I'm doing it now, he starts just, you know, it's a swivel chair. He just starts rocking back and forth while while gesticulating and, to, and answering the question. And then he started, and he, I'm wearing just one earpiece. The guest isn't wearing anything. He starts spinning in circles on the... It was the most amusing, charming, entrancing thing. And if you listen towards the end of the, the Siegel podcast... You could kind of yeah. hear him whipping around the microphone as he spins around because, like, he really gets into it. And it when was, he's presenting, he's pacing back and forth I in front totally of the screen. I totally pictured that. Yeah, he's always, like, I could see him jumping on a desk and waving his arms. He gets animated, that's for sure. That That's a, that's really interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the things we missed during the broadcast. There were a couple of questions I had to ask you because— uh, we talked about a lot of things. Uh, we hardly mentioned some guy named Michael Steinhardt, legendary yeah. investor, uh, founder of Wisdom Tree. Tell us about his role with the creation and development of the country of the company, and, and what sort of. Uh, working relationship you have with him so i would say he's the chairman of the company he was the original backer and the sort of he funded the company so jonathan steinberg it was, it was and luciano circusano was their intellectual property sort of developing mm-hmm. the firm after the the magazine Industrial investor group but michael you know he hadn't done anything he had retired he closed his fund after literally starting the hedge fund industry had the best for 29 years i think something like 25 percent return right it's an incredible track numbers, record right. and then he closed the fund in 94 d- dedicated his life to charity birth closed the fund in 94 like you still have seven years of a booming bull market he's like nope i'm done yeah he just he that's I, I, amazing it's another story for another day but he closed it he didn't do anything finance wise he was giving back giving his money to charity and he didn't do anything, literally, in finance until Wisdom Tree. Uh, and a decade later. 2004, yeah. So he met Jono, and Jono was, had the idea about the ETF structure and, and really this better way performance-based indexing was his concept. And Michael was, I mean, there's a story I remember from the early days that Michael said, you know, if I was presented with the opportunity to fund Vanguard, I wouldn't have. That he I, would not have. He would not have. Because he was not about tracking the market. He was about beating the market. Mm-hmm. And he wanted he saw this idea of trying to generate better performance, a very performance-oriented culture. And so that's what really inspired him to get involved with Jono. And Jono, you know, linked it up with Siegel and, and we helped validate their initial research and gave some academic backing to why we think this could work going forward and, and that there was something to this. And that's how the that sort of trinity came together of Steinhardt funding, Professor Siegel joining, and also funding it back in back in '04 and joining as a senior advisor. And then they you know brought me on together. But it's it's um, it was that performance oriented mindset that Steinhardt really was in, inspired by. Hmm. That that's quite fascinating. And I don't know Jonathan Stein, but I know his father was Saul Stein, who yep. ran. Reliance Insurance. This is back in the eighties and nineties, way back when. Yeah, and I, I didn't really get to know Saul, but in the in this in the small world, um, you know, I used to work in the Steinberg Dietrich Hall at Wharton, and oh, Professor really? Siegel is the chaired by Saul Steinberg. So it's a small interconnected world of how it all comes together. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a great relationship, and he's also one of these you know passionate about ETS, passionate about what we're doing, and, and really has assembled just a remarkable team at Wisdom Tree. So you guys are so valuation-oriented, I, I would be remiss if I did not ask you uh, about valuations of stocks and bonds. First, since we talked about Schiller, let's talk about the CAPE ratio. 
Does the cape ratio tell the full story? Um, it's a it's a it's a complicated question there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Siegel has done a lot of work on this, and which he's published I find, a lot. by the way, I find hilarious that the two of them are arguing in white papers, good naturedly about what is the value of the cape? Is it worth something? Is it not worth a lot? Is it just here are your expected returns, or does it really give us buy and sell signals? Siegel loves the the framework. He thinks that and it has been one of the, the better predictors of long term returns. He thinks the earnings numbers are biased and that is creating Why? problems. So counting numbers changed. The mm-hmm. 09 crisis, which is still in the Cape, basically three firms wiped out all of the earnings of the S and P 500. They were small firms. Wait, say that again. Three? How is that possible? Three firms wiped out yeah. all of the. Yeah. Earnings of the S and P. Basically, Bank of America, Citigroup, AIG. The way they do not, earnings, not exactly small firms. No, but but they, at the time they were by market value. They were small by market value. They're almost, still giant companies with a massive revenue than, base. So so go, go, we'll go through an example here. But by market value, they were small at the time, and they destroyed all of the earnings. So you're investing. And take a simple two-stock example. Bank of America, City, and AIG. AIG. But take a simple example. You have 94% of your portfolio. Okay, let's say you have a, a, a $140 billion, uh, $10 billion. One firm is, is $10 billion of profits. Another firm is is negative $9 billion. Okay? Right. And the first one, 15 PE. So you have 150 billion market cap. The second firm, negative nine billion profits, called 10 billion. So you have one billion of total profits for mm-hmm. the combined firm, 160 billion market cap. So is your PE 160, or is your PE 15? 94% of your portfolio is at 15 PE. That makes what sense. Is the true, what is the true portfolio PE? Mm-hmm. And the way S and P does their earnings, it's dollar for dollar. And so that's makes sense. It's a it's a problem in the way of the counting on the on the P ratios. So so here's the pushback on that. When you look across the universe of earnings, let, let's hold McDonald's and GE aside, who absolutely in the recession saw an earnings crunch, yeah. but they still were on the green side of the ledger, more or less. But you have Lehman Brothers going to zero and Bear Stearns earnings, you know, both of them deeply negative. And then there's a hundred other financial-related firms who saw their earnings compressed, be it BlackRock or UBS. UBS is a ADR, so not that. But you could look yeah. at a ton of different, every bank, the home builders, totally went in yeah. the crapper. The broker-dealers got shellacked. The community banks did really poorly. So it, while those three firms had like a massively negative earnings number, Everybody else's numbers really came down or were, you know, at best flat. And that's before we start talking about industrials, auto sales fall off the cliff. I mean, you could go down the list of of sectors. So while for sure these three companies had an outsized impact, the rest of earnings fell 60, 70, 80 percent. Well, that, that's the question of how much did they really fall. And so I think if you look at things like the NIPA profits, um, national income product account profits, mm-hmm. or the GDP numbers where they count profits, they didn't fall anywhere near as much. And so when you do these P ratio but, adjustments... But that's not what we use for PE earnings. Well, the tr- question is, how do you get a real earnings number? And what is the real earnings series? And so there's there's biases in in the numbers. And mm-hmm. the, you, could, you could debate on how much the magnitude is, but they changed some of the accounting rules, so now you're forced to mark down 
losses. I mean, Buffett writes about this all the time. He says, I can never write up the value of my assets. You can only mark down the value of your assets. And so the accounting rules are one-sided there. But they suspended that for banks right after, uh, what was it, the October 08 debacle, and then again in um, the first, the the whole, um, the whole, I'm trying to remember what the, which accounting rule changed, but Some essentially, yeah. essentially, we allowed banks to, ah, you could segment them. You don't have to write them down. So for all we really know, these banks were insolvent and were running on fumes and government handouts. So I'm pushing back on the, well, things really weren't that bad. They were god-awful then. Well, no, I, I get that they're god-awful. Um, but the question is, is that it's, it's been a poor, in the last 30 years, it's, it's certainly been a very poor predictor. And so the question is- No doubt is, about that. So the question is- In fact, you're, you're better off buying when earnings are at their worst than buying when their earnings are at their better. Yeah. Best. And it would have kept you out of the market for basically all but a few months. Mm-hmm. I mean, even 09, right? A few months after the market rebounded in 09, it was telling you to stay out of the market. And the market's up two, 2 to 3x since then. So then the question is... At least 3x in the U.S., to say the least. And so, you know, in terms of going forward, how do you look at valuations today? I'd say, you know, the S&P PE is around 20 times earnings. Mm-hmm. And this is going back and forth with Siegel. But he would say the earnings yield is close to 5% today. And so you get a real earnings yield the of 5%. earnings yield of 5% versus historical average of what? 16 is the average PE. So when he says stocks are long run, you had a 6.7 long-term real return. That's basically one divided by the 16. Mm-hmm. So that's where you get the 6.7 right. six, real return. You're inverting it to yes. take out the zeros. Or just the earnings yield. It's just P over mm-hmm. E versus E over P. Mm-hmm. And so you get 6.7. Um, today, if the P is 20, you get a 5% earnings right. yield. You know, the historical equity premium for his 200 years of data was 3%. Today, the real equity, pre- you could say the real equity premium is like four and a half because the 10 year tips is at 50 right. and you have a five earnings yield. And on top of that, and this is a whole nother conversation, but on top of that, when you look at the money being thrown off by companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook, it's not like the old days where you're building a railroad, you hire 10,000 yeah. people. And buy you know endless tonnage of steel. Yeah. Uh, look at look at WhatsApp or look at uh, Instagram or some of these other things where it's twenty people are worth five billion dollars and their cost structure is a handful of laptops and some internet connectivity. And that's the worry that people say, well, margins are going to mean revert, and Maybe. that's going to be the problem that you we're at these high valuations and margins are are high and they're going to head downward. So that's the most bearish argument is that uh, margins have to mean revert, but they may not because of what you're saying that the, well, technology is different return on capital right. that you just have a different profile going for. You know the problem with mean reversion is hey if you're waiting for mean reversion in the leather belt companies and steam engines yeah. that that isn't happening and and you know I always I never want to come across as an apologist for expensive stocks, but that's before we even start talking about the frictions of executing a trade, buying a stock, buying an ETF, it used to be immensely expensive to go out and just buy a stock. That yes. isn't the case anymore. Right. So if you may have had to pay more than 1%, probably paid more than 1% to 2% to actually get market-like portfolios and get these diversified portfolios, where now, like we talked in the first segment, they're basically free to get diversification. Mm-hmm. And so how much higher should P ratios be going forward compared to the past when you don't have that friction? You can say you could justify a 20 PE compared to a 16 PE. Um, and whenever you really did have single-digit PEs, you had double-digit interest rates. So how far That's are right. we from double-digit interest rates? So the the pushback on stocks are expensive, stocks are cheap. Hey, stocks were cheap as hell throughout the 70s. 
because you can get 10% in treasuries. So right. why would you be invested in stocks? Right, exactly. If you could get 10% in treasuries today, I'd be gladly go all my portfolio to bonds. But you, If you're getting 10% treasuries, we have an inflation problem, which is going to be different. Which, let's talk about bonds. So there's a huge swath of bond bears who have been declaring the end of the 30-year Paul Volcker-induced bond bull market for, I don't know, about 10 years. We've been hearing this is the end yeah. of the bond market. Are bonds, by the way you guys value, the way Wisdom Tree values fixed income, are we in a bond bubble? Well, Siegel and I had did some op-eds in the Wall Street Journal together in 2011, 2012. You, ne- you don't get to choose your title in the Wall Street Journal. so we- That's true, by the way, for everybody who writes a column. People don't know this. The editors choose the headline, and very often it's clicky and catchy, but yes. may not reflect the nuances of what yeah. you wrote. And the nuance of the article was, buy dividend-paying stocks over tips, because you had a, you know, a, a 1% 10-year tips. The first article in 2011, mm-hmm. you had 1% 10-year tips. And we said, you could get stocks yielding 3 4%. And, over and that was time, six years ago. That, that worked out. Time. That was a good good call. It, they, the article was the Great American Bond Bubble. So the title was, yes, there's this huge bubble in bonds because you right. have this 1% tip yield. Then you had this negative tip yield. You had negative 1%, which was when, really insane. Which was when? A few years later, you had mm-hmm. bond yields in the U.S. You would say, I'm going to give the U.S. government $100 and get back $90 after inflation 10 years later. On the expectation that it wasn't even disinflation, that there was full-blown deflation coming our way. It was just massive massive risk aversion. It's like, mm-hmm. why would you give the government and take back? A, you would never think you would have a 10-year negative tips yield. But guess where you do have that today? You still have huge negative tips or inflation-adjusted bond yields in Europe. I mean, Germany's 10-year tips are negative. Which which is not a surprise when you look at, you had a, a financial crisis hit the whole world, but the order of recovery was the U.S. was the first and most aggressive responder. As much as people screamed about QE and ZERP, we were the first there. Then it's arguable that Japan was next, and Europe is still the laggard. Is that a a fair description? Yeah, and I think even from where QE and monetary policy is going, you have the Fed is quote-unquote normalizing. Mm -hmm. We're raising rates. We're reducing our balance sheet. You have Japan targeting zero yields um, on the tenure. So they, they sort of outsourced their monetary policy to the U.S., you have the ECB, negative rates at the short end. You have them still aggressively expanding the balance sheet. Um, but you could still say, why should somebody have a negative inflation-adjusted bond yield for 10 years? I mean, that's a pretty aggressive statement. Um, that That's rational. So- Un- unless you're, you really have an expectation that we're entering a period of deflation and your money is worth more today than tomorrow. I mean, that's the only way I can rationalize it. And these inflation-adjusted yields, I mean, it's it's, it's hard. It, it, it's just a sign of risk aversion that you don't trust money in the banks. That and, makes sense. And you don't want to get the negative, you know, the ECB's at negative 40, and so they're they're, t- they're sort of taxing your money by keeping them in, in cash at the bank. You, you and I can talk about this stuff forever, but I only have you for a finite amount of time. So what say we jump to my favorite questions that I ask all of uh, my guests? The first one is, tell me something about your background that most people don't know. You know, so, and I think about this, I have two young daughters, they're two and five, um, and you think about how much of where, what you do at a young age influences, you're like, you sort of think back to like, where, how do I get to where I am? And there's obviously the proximate causes, getting linked up with Siegel at, at Penn, and how do I get hooked up with that, and the people you met at Penn. But I, I actually go back to, my dad says it goes back to when I was 
two, and he would read me the the you know the Wall Street Journal page and the stock pages, showing me numbers and getting me interested in stocks. From, At two years old, from your dad like read on you his, the Wall Street on Journal on his knee, you know. So he thinks it was that that early. That's funny. Um, I think about when did I really get good at math? And so when I was in in first grade, um, my parents moved to Baltimore for six months, and I went to this Hebrew day school where they taught half the day in Hebrew and half the day in English. Are you fluent in Hebrew? So I spoke more Hebrew in first grade than I ever did ever again. So we moved down to Florida. And, <laughs> and that uh, was the end of that. That was the end of that. But I was Although you could could have started speaking Yiddish in parts of uh, So South supposedly Florida. when I moved back to South Florida, I was teaching people Hebrew in my class. But mm-hmm. and in first grade, I was already in second grade math, so they accelerated me. And then I just always thought of myself as really good in math, sort of advanced from that one, you know, that first grade where you just get this edge from a different school and you transfer back to a different school and how much that then sort of established my foundation throughout the rest of middle school, high school, college, coming in with a year's worth of credit so I could take off a year to work with Siegel. All mm-hmm. these things started from basically when I was in first grade. You, you had a, you had an edge in first grade and you just carried that forward, never let anybody catch up. I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's, but I think it does carry all the way back there. So here's a, a silly question for you, but I'm assuming we can expand on it. Who were your early mentors? And feel free to talk about Siegel, although we've really discussed him a lot. Add what you want or, or describe other mentors. Yeah, I mean, so he's obviously been the, the number one that shaped the last 20 years. Um, I think one of the things that I hope to embody um, is he's, he said to me, you know, despite all he had, obviously he was successful from the books and the speaking, and then Wisdom Tree took it to another level. But he told me once that despite all that success, seeing um, like the impact he had on, on me over time was like just more, even more rewarding. And hmm. um, so I hope to have that influence on people who work with me. And so for, I'm, I'm sure the, my team is listening in uh, when the podcast comes out. I hope to have that influence on them. At, and, uh, you know, you have to embrace it like I embrace it with him. And you got to push me to hopefully, you know, my team tries to take me up on that. Um, beyond that, I mean, the co-founders of Wisdom Tree, Jonathan Steinberg, Luciano Circusano, gave a trust in me at a young age. I mean, I was, when I joined them, 22 years old, 23 years old. Really? And they made me head of research when I was 27, managing a few billion dollars. So the trust and confidence in just seeing talent and trying to help, you know, put them in a position to do well was was unbelievable. So they've mentored me in, in unbelievable ways. Um, and, and sort of, I try to aspire to be, I mean, Jono, our CEO, is really an unbelievable character. And it really leads us in a way that just what he's been able to overcome in terms of building wisdom tree. I mean, it's the odds were definitely stacked against him and he's just built this incredible team and motivated us all to, to rally around it and, and keeps us motivated every day. So let's talk about investors. What investors influenced your approach to markets, valuation, ETFs, et cetera? Um, it's some of the standards, I mean, it's very value-based investing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's you know, you've read everything Buffett's written. And, mm-hmm. and so the behavioral finance crew from Thaler and all, all that he's written on, on behavioral finance, Schiller, I mean, that, it's, 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 a, it's a standard thing in, in the value quality type investing uh, is, is a lot of it. Um, the, one of the books I remember, and he's all, they're also getting a great following now, you know, in terms of the quant finance group, you know, you've read things like What Works on Wall Street from the O'Shaughnessy Asset Management O'Shaughnessy, Group. O'Shaughnessy, absolutely. That was one of the first books I read with uh, working with Siegel. So all those, so it's a lot of the standard quant value quality type folks. So let, let's talk about books. This is everybody's favorite um, question. I'm going to 
put down Osam's What Works on Wall Street. What are some of your favorite books? By the way, fiction, nonfiction, investing related, whatever. What what do you what have you enjoyed reading? What are you reading now? Yeah, and 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 there's actually an overlap there from from Osam. So Patrick's reading list is probably one of my go-to sources. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on a personal level, one of the books that I read that has influenced me in my thinking is there's a book Mountains Beyond Mountains from from Tracy Kidder who profiled Paul Farmer and you know he it was a really moving book for me and as I thought about how do I become you know is there some charities to embrace but Farmer started this group Partners in Health and it's it's one that I've embraced personally Partners in Health yeah. So he's just as a one man, he's a Harvard doctor, goes to Haiti. That, that, the book was all about his expeditions to Haiti and how he was devoting his life to improving the health conditions in Haiti. Mm-hmm. But it's now expanded to, they're like in 12 different countries. But it was one that I found on O'Shaughnessy's list. And it's it's one that it definitely touched me. And I, I sort of spread that to my friends who are involved in health and in health policy. It's it's a really fascinating book. What are you reading right now? What What's on your nightstand? One that I think is actually for the next decade that I just um, I'm sort of in finishing is um, Destined for War, which I pick- Destined for War. Wow, which, which that's I, some title. Which I picked up from Kyle Bass on one of the other podcasts I just listened to, and so he it talks about it. it it's a um, Graham Allison, I think, is the, okay. is the author, and it 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 talks about it really the U.S. versus China. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's as you think about the two rivalries over the next sure. 10 years, China's ascending, it's challenging the U.S., and the book goes through the, the times in history you had these ascending rivals, and it's, it goes back to Athens and Sparta, and it goes through all these different examples of when you had these up-and-comers rivaling you know, the, stat, the embedded powers and uh-huh. the tensions that creates, and I do think China's ascendance is one of the big stories for the next 10 years. No, no doubt. And thank you for not using the word frenemies. I, I, we all really appreciate that. Um, so you've been in the industry for almost 20 years. Is that a fair uh, statement? Since when did you graduate Wharton? So I've been working, I'd say, really, I, I, would, I would mark my start date of 2001, once I started working for Siegel. But mm-hmm. we graduated in 03. All right. So you're, you're 15 years coming up on, on, on 20 years. What do you think is the most significant changes that have take pla- taken place over the course of that arc of time within the financial industry? Certainly, ETFs have exploded, and that's right where we're four trillion now, something from like that. We were three hundred billion to ten times that, right? Mm-hmm. So that's certainly the, one of the major trends, and we're I'm lucky to be part of it and trying to shape it and, and try to continue to shape it. And certainly, technologies just advance at just such remarkable space that that's the next 10 years is going to be all about how you marry technology increasingly with investments. And that's, I hope to be part of that as well. And um, your ears must have been burning last week. I was at an ETF event um, and your name had come up several times. I believe one of your staff members was was actually there. Awesome. Um, So let's talk about the next major shifts. If the rise of ETF is, is the biggest single factor over the past 10, 15 years, what do you think the next major change is going to be? Well, everything has been broad-based exposure so far. Mm-hmm. So you really, where there's still the highest fee. So if you think about this active to passive shift, there hasn't been, I mean, the hedge funds 
is in some ways the, sort of the, the most expensive part of the market where no you know our, our CEO likes to say John likes to say that the rich get the worst advice and so they get put in this the most expensive advice for sure yeah the uh, the, the most expensive and worst together come and, come for the high fees stay for the underperformance and the not ability to get your money back no transparency and so it's it's going we're going to increasingly go after that mm-hmm. and and so we start off as very broad based beta we're doing more long short more alternatives we're going to go after that too so alternatives being hedge funds private equity venture capital you think that entire um well, private equity can't be an ETF. Right? That's no doubt that's about private. that. But is that sector of the of the investment world ripe for disruption? Oh yeah, um, we definitely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, we definitely think about that. We figure out how do we rope that into things like our advisor engine um, investment partnership in terms of bringing that technology oriented to the masses. But there's going to be elements of trying to. I think there's more we can do there. Um, on the private side, but but in the where the public side, where you can where we're focused on the ETF market, we're definitely going to think about doing alternatives and long short strategies. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um, I mean, I think about our ETFs. I mean, every ETF is a little startup, and sure. So we have a number of ETFs that fail. You close ETFs down. Um, you try to examine why y- your your thesis when you start um, when you launched it and it didn't gain assets or traction. What cause that. So we're constantly evaluating our failures and trying to learn from them and, and figure out, can we do things differently over time? And I mean, some of our greatest success stories have come from changing, as we talked about earlier on. You change funds that didn't take off and you change them. Um, and then you say, you know, why did I miss that segment, things that took off that you could have been there positioned well for? And you try to learn from all those things. So let me, let me ask the part B to that question. You guys have over 50 different funds, How, and some of them have clearly caught a little lightning in a yeah. bottle. They've done really well. How do you try and sprinkle that into a fund that might not be doing as well as, as you had originally hoped for yeah. when it was launched? I, mean, we, I don't mean doing as well in terms of performance. I mean resonating with investors yes. and attracting assets. Yeah, we close. We have close to 100 funds in the U.S. today. Really? So we have a very broad menu. Um and they are all. I actually view all of our ETFs as little options where you're paying. You know, you're paying a fixed cost, and you got to figure out you, until they get to break even. And so you're paying this sort of option premium until they potentially can have big upside. And so you, at some point you have to say that's a good way to contextualize that. It's it's all right. They either you're either willing to pay that option premium because you still mm-hmm. think that option might really take off and then it has really big payoffs. Um, Make, or, makes sense to me. And so that's really how I think about it. And so as long as we're still convinced there's a market opportunity, we, you know, when we started in 06, 07, we didn't have that kind of runway. We had to be much more careful. We have more runway today. You can afford to nurture things that might be a little pricey while you, internally to run it yeah. while waiting for it to hit break even or better because you believe in the, you have a high degree of conviction in, in the idea. And we do close things down, you know, of course, from time to time when you've just given up and you think you've given it its time and you've let it play out. But, you know, we want to try to give things, you know, it take it could three to five years before you evaluate whether or not it's really been why you haven't been successful. And you could still close things down, then you wish you didn't close it down. Hmm, That's interesting. All right, we're down to our last few questions. Um, You're a relatively young guy, so I'm going to ask this differently. What do you do to relax outside of the office? 
Um, my wife got into yoga, so she uh, she got teacher trained as a yoga teacher. Oh, really? So the summers, she we, we go down the Jersey Shore by the beach there, and it's where we do the most yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, is is our we have a Jersey Shore yoga teacher that's it's like our guru. Um, in 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 Philly where we live, we have a pool, and she says if I ever finance doesn't work out, I should be a swim teacher. So <laughs> love love spending time in the water with the kids, and um, but a combination of yoga. Walking, you know, we did the uh, Alpha Architect March for the Fawn, which was that looked fascinating. It was a big New York Times article about that. It was also. awesome. So Wes, and is, Wes is great. There. I really like everything those guys do. Yeah, so so a lot of walking as well. Um, you're a relatively young person who graduated school not too long ago, but if a millennial or a recent graduate came up to you and said, "Hey, I'm interested in the career of finance," what sort of advice would you give them? You know, when I think back to how I got hooked up with Siegel, obviously, can you find that mentor who can be useful for you? And, and the keywords I used there when I made my pitch was free, mm-hmm. work for free. And in reality, you should pay people because it's really an investment in their time. Right. But I think about interns and even my cost to bring an intern on, it's, you're going to have to spend time with them because they're not going to add a lot of value up front. Mm-hmm. And so they're actually a drag on you versus the time. And so, you know, thinking very true. about that. That's very true. Um, so you want to get find the right people who can mentor you and get the right opportunity. And and you got to put in a lot of time and effort early on. Don't come, you know, the, the millennials mentality is they're entitled. So you got to not feel entitled and, and work hard and, and, and a lot of good things will come. And our final question, what is it that you know about investing, indexing, ETFs, dividends, valuation today that you wish you knew 17 years ago when you first started? Uh, dividend investing, when we looked at history going back 50, 60 years, I mean, dividends did very well during most down markets. Um, the 08, 09 down market, financials paid a lot of dividends. So it was not your typical down market in terms of how much down market protection you got. So I think I learned more about sector concentration risk mm-hmm. and just the risk of overly becoming concentrated in sectors despite what their value signals might say. So it's something on sector concentrations that you know I I've tried to think about more over time as we develop future products is what what sort of the sector biases or how can you control for sectors in a way that you don't get overloaded in those times of crisis. We have been speaking with Jeremy Schwartz. He is the director of research at Wisdom Tree Investments. Uh, thank you, Jeremy, for doing this. I really appreciate uh, you being so generous with your time. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the other 150-something previous conversations we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff who helps me put together these podcasts each week. Medina Parwana is our audio producer and engineer par excellence. Taylor Riggs is in charge of booking. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.